where can meaning be found, is a question that we all must wrestle with at some point in our lives. Where can meaning be found? In what will I choose to place significance? Where will I find value? Where will I attribute ultimate worth? Where can meaning be found? For the disciples of Jesus, they had placed value, meaning, ultimate significance in their master, their Lord, this carpenter from Nazareth. They had made a decision to place ultimate meaning in him. And it wasn't without good reason. They had been with Jesus for the best part of three years. Every day walking with him, observing him, listening to his teaching. They saw up close everything about this man. They understood how he taught with authority. Unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, his teaching was different. The disciples had seen up close the miracles that Jesus had performed. He'd given sight to the blind. He caused the lame to walk. He had called Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead. The disciples had seen it all. And so, not without good reason, they had made the decision somewhere along the way that ultimate meaning, significance, value, they would attribute to this man. Everything else would be secondary to their allegiance to Jesus, their trust in him, their adherence to him, their obedience to him, their love for him. And then, towards the end of his life, things started to change somewhat. The nature of his teaching towards the disciples started to take a new turn. Jesus began to tell them, I have to suffer. They didn't like the teaching the first time they heard it. They pushed back, they rejected it. But Jesus persisted, I must suffer. Then he went further and he taught his disciples that in fact he would die. And they didn't like that teaching either. It seemed to run contrary to everything that they had come to believe about him. They found in him a a king, a savior, one who would preside on their behalf, would rule for them, would be good towards them. And now he's saying, I have to go and die. And then sure enough, as Jesus led them to Jerusalem, it came to pass exactly as he said. He was arrested. He was handed over. He was accused. He was tried, he was charged, he was beaten, he was mocked, he was scourged, and he was crucified. It is difficult to imagine the grief of those disciples as they looked on and saw their Lord die on the cross. Because it is more to them than merely having lost their mentor. It is more than witnessing the death of their teacher. 
He was more than that to them. They had placed all of their hope in this man, Jesus. All of their value, worth, significance, they had decided would be found in him and him alone. For the disciples, everything else in life derived its meaning as it related to Christ. And now he was dead. And if he had stayed dead, history would record these men as utter fools. As Paul wrote, and as we have already read this morning, more than any, they are to be pitied. Mock them, laugh at them, sneer at them, pass them by, give them not a second of your time. Pity them because they are foolish for having ever decided that Jesus would be the answer to the question, where shall meaning be found? But of course, that isn't how the story played out. Three days later, on the first day of the week, the tomb was found to be empty. Jesus had risen. For 40 days, he walked amongst men. He showed himself to many. And then he ascended. And so, far from being fools, those disciples had placed their hope exactly where they ought to have. For 2,000 years, the church has been celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Because, understood, interpreted correctly, it gives significance and meaning to this man. Everything is understood about Jesus with reference to the empty tomb. It answers the question emphatically, in a declarative and a final sense, That meaning, ultimate value and significance is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, the church would say to have placed your hope in anything other is the foolish decision. How so? Because in the empty tomb we see that the identity of this man is validated. When Jesus emerged from the tomb in his resurrected body, signaling the victory over death and sin, he demonstrated to all that would care to look that he was indeed the Son of God. Just as he had taught his disciples, he was the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior. Not only did his resurrection validate his identity, it validated his mission. He had come teaching not just that he was the Son of God, but that he was the Son of God who would make a payment, who would die as a ransom for many. He had come to deal with our ultimate problem, namely that of sin. And the resurrection validates the work that he accomplished on the cross. And then finally, as Jesus emerges from the tomb, he validates our hope. He signals to the disciples and all that would put their faith in him that there is a resurrection that awaits them. They too would be like him with newness of life one day when the kingdom comes and they receive resurrected bodies. Jesus' resurrection validates his identity, his mission, and our hope. They're my three points today. You have them. 
In Mark's gospel, the narrative is brief, eight verses concerning the empty tomb and no appearance of the resurrected Christ. It's lacking the details that perhaps we would desire for him to include for us, the explanatory comments, the theological interpretation. But there are enough clues. If we read the text carefully, there are enough clues in these eight verses to guide us and to indicate to us why the resurrection is so important. So my prayer is that we would all be led by God this morning in our reading of this text to see the significance of the resurrection and so be encouraged in our faith in Christ. I want to work through the text and highlight those three validations as we find them, albeit hints, beginning with the validation of Jesus' identity. We read that it was on The first day of the week, the Sabbath had now passed, and the women who had witnessed the death of Christ, you'll remember from our time together on Friday, they stood far off, most likely because the the sight of a man being crucified was too much to take in. And so they stood far off, and yet in God's providence, he ensured that they knew two things. Number one, that Jesus had died, and number two, where he was laid. So in an act of love, on the first day of the week, they come bringing spices. Their intention is not to preserve his body. It was not a Jewish custom. They understood that a dead man was dead and his body would now decay. They brought the spices to minimize the smell of a decomposing corpse. They're doing this out of their love for Jesus. They want to anoint his body with spices. And on the way, they have a discussion about who will move the tombstone, the big stone in front of the tomb, who would move it aside so that they could enter, knowing that it was far too large for them to move. And of course, when they arrive, their astonishment Not only has the stone already been moved, but more to the point, Jesus is not in the tomb. So by inference, Mark is leading us to see the resurrection. And we can pause there and simply consider the fact of his resurrection. Before we go on to think through the the subsequent implications, consider simply the fact of the resurrection. Jesus had come teaching many, many great things. He had taught his disciples how to live, how to be reconciled with God. He had taught them concerning himself. And Jesus had performed many great miracles such that in a ministry of word and work, he had consistently presented himself as the Messiah, the long-anticipated King of Israel. In his words and in his work, Jesus had consistently presented himself in accordance with the expectations laid out in the Old Testament concerning the Son of God. Everything lined up. His ministry fit hand in glove with the anticipation of the Son of God. 
He even taught concerning his resurrection. He said to them, I must be handed over and tried and killed, but I will rise again. In other gospel accounts, more specifically, he uses the metaphor of the temple. Destroy this temple, he says, speaking of his own body. And I will rise it up again in three days. You see, this resurrection is more than we see with Lazarus. With Lazarus, Jesus beckons him forth. With his resurrection, Jesus himself raises his body from the dead. Destroy this temple and I will rise it in three days. And so, the fact of the resurrection validates everything he had taught concerning himself. If he had not been raised to life, People would laugh at his teaching ministry this day. People would laugh at all that he said concerning himself. All of the presentations that he gave, that he was indeed the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, would mean nothing because his life ended in such a pitiful manner. But that he rose from the dead. But that he rose from the dead, there is a validation that he was indeed exactly who he said he was. The Son of God, the Savior, the King of the world. Now it might be that you're hearing this for the first time, or perhaps really only coming to terms with it for the first time. Maybe you have never really wrestled with the Bible's claim that Jesus rose from the dead. You've always dismissed it because it's been more convenient to not have to confront it. And it might be in the hearing of his resurrection, you have objections. You're not the first. Many throughout history, most likely from the very first Lord's Day, have objected to the claim of a resurrected Christ. And the objections are many, and they're all slightly nuanced, and people offer them thinking that they've found the loophole in the argument. In reality, the objections fall into one of two categories. You either deny that he really died, or you deny that he really rose. That's it. That's the sum total of people's objections against the resurrection. Well, he didn't really die. He wasn't quite dead his heart was still beating and so they took him down still a living man the problem is the evidence doesn't stand up to that he was scourged before being crucified for many men the scourging itself would kill them so intense so violent was that period of punishment that their hearts would stop beating then they wouldn't even make it to the cross We saw on Friday night how Jesus was too weak at that point to carry his own cross. So they called in Simon of Cyrene to carry it for him. He was then very definitely nailed to the cross. And in other gospel accounts, we read of how they stuck and thrust a spear into his side so as to ensure that he was very much dead. He was as dead as dead dead can be. He was a dead man. To think that his heart was still beating and that he would have strength 
three days later, having not had any water or food, to stand up and to move the stone away is unreasonable. Well then, what about the idea that he didn't rise? He truly died, but he didn't really rise again. And somehow the disciples manufactured the resurrection. They moved the stone away. They hid his body away. And then they started proclaiming a resurrected Christ. You have to remember, the disciples are not very popular at this time. The Jewish authorities hate them. The Roman government doesn't have any time for them. The last thing the general public would have desired is the narrative that Christ is risen. Had it been a false narrative, they would have succeeded in silencing them. This text would not still be being read and studied and rejoiced in 2,000 years later. But the fact that the narrative persisted, that no one could silence them, is testimony in and of itself to the validity of his resurrection. He appeared to over 500 men. Do you think that all 500 were rejoicing to see him? Or could it have been that many of that crowd wanted nothing more for this whole affair to be done away with. And yet the narrative persists, suggesting that the most reasonable conclusion in light of all of the evidence is that Christ truly died and he truly rose again. And in his rising from the dead, he is proclaimed to be the Son of God. Paul later on, as he writes to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Jesus was proclaimed to be the Son of God through his resurrection. It validates his identity. And so you dare not think this event, this story, this narrative is thousands of miles away from where you are sat today. You dare not think think that because it was thousands of miles away, it has no bearing on your life. You don't allow yourself to think this story happened thousands of years ago from where I am situated in history, and therefore it really doesn't matter. Neither the time nor the space between these events and your life today make any difference concerning its significance for you. Where can meaning be found? The answer is in the resurrected Christ. There was a man that came and he claimed to be the Son of God. And he taught and he conducted himself in perfect accordance with the expectations concerning the Son of God. And then... He rose again, validating that that's exactly who he is. And so if you are looking for meaning, then you look no further than the resurrected Christ. Not only does the empty tomb validate Jesus as the Son of God, it also validates his mission as a saviour. You'll notice as they behold the stone rolled away and the tomb now accessible, they go in. And Mark tells us in verse 5, entering, they saw a young man. A young man dressed in 
a white robe. If I had stopped you as you arrived this morning, and I forbid you to open your Bible, you're not allowed to look, just tell me. This is not a trick question. I just want to know out of interest, who was in that tomb when the women walked in? I am absolutely certain you would tell me an angel was. And you're exactly right. An angel was in the tomb. Mark knows that. The other gospel writers testify to that. But I want you to pay attention to the particular words that Mark chooses to use. He's not clumsy. He's not accidental. He's not flippant with his narrative. The more you read Mark's gospel, the more you see a literary genius at work. Carried along by the Holy Spirit, the inspired text, this wonderfully told story concerning Christ. Mark chooses a different word to represent the person in the tomb that day. Specifically, a young man. Now, why would Mark do that? Well, the answer is because he has reserved that word in a very special way throughout the entirety of his gospel. He uses it only one other time in all 16 chapters. There are many young men in the gospel narrative that could have had this word attributed to them, but Mark intentionally reserves it. He holds it back in order to be able to use it on two occasions and two occasions alone. The other occasion is significant, and you might want to just turn back with me to chapter 14 to see it. Chapter 14, verse 51. Mark writes, a young man, same word, a young man followed him, Jesus, this is in the garden, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, the young man, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Did you ever wonder about the naked man in Mark's gospel? He's the only one that records it for us. No explanatory comments, two verses, and then he moves on. It's the same word, and it's only used twice, there and in the empty tomb. Now, concerning the naked young man, the point to note is that this person, whomever he was, many believe this to be Mark himself, his own signature, as it were, in the gospel, whoever this man was at the moment when a confession was most needed, at the moment when a profession of allegiance to Christ was being most demanded of him, he failed utterly. He fled the scene. Just like Peter would go on to do, denying Christ three times, the young man failed to say, I'm with him. I don't care what comes from my confession. Do whatever you want to me. I profess gladly that I follow the one whom you have just arrested. He failed to do that. In fact, quite the opposite. He fled 
And in his fleeing, the linen cloth that he was wearing is left behind. So now he's running naked away from the scene. And in a very symbolic manner, his nakedness is representative of his shame. This is a shameful moment for him. And Mark, in large measure, this portion of his gospel is creating an atmosphere of shame surrounding Jesus. All that are associated with him are being shamed. There is no one that is celebrating their hard labor of having followed with him for several years. No one is saying you made the right choice. No one is saying you you did the right thing to have left your livelihood and your family and gone with this carpenter. No one is saying that. In fact, everyone is looking at those associated with Jesus and saying, shame on you. And then in the empty tomb, Mark says there was a young man. He's not saying... This figure is that young man. He's not trying to say that. Mark knows it's an angel. Mark knows who the naked young man was. He understands they're different people, but he's choosing to use a word so as to forge a literary connection. He wants us to make theological conclusions based on the use of the same word used only two times, and now the young man is not naked, he's not ashamed, but he's dressed in a glorious white robe. He's glorious. And forever after, people will say of these these followers of Jesus, they made the right choice. No one in the church will say they they were shamed. They made the right, wrong choice, but they will look at folks such as this, these disciples, and say just how wonderful was their profession of faith to have followed Christ. And here the young man is not shamed, but he is dressed in white robes. His, his is the privilege to announce to them the resurrected Christ. And so with these two instances of this one word, the question that Mark intends for us to consider is how do we move from this position of shame, of embarrassment? How do we move from there to a position of utter glory, of wonder, of privilege? How is it that the cross and everything associated with it and every one associated with it who is being so shamed can now rejoice in that reality. And the answer is, right in the middle, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It is the resurrection that validates the cross. It is the empty tomb that speaks concerning the cross and says to all that would consider it, it was not meaningless. The empty tomb adds a commentary on the cross and says it wasn't wasted, but it accomplished exactly what Jesus said it would accomplish. He had already taught them 
I come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. It is the the central, most important verse in Mark's gospel. I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. And then he dies. He is crucified on the cross. And it is the resurrection, the empty tomb that says, and so it was. The payment has been made. Consider. Imagine that you had a debt, a financial debt that was far, far greater than you could ever pay. You've got yourself into a situation where this debt is far greater than you will ever be able to pay. And the the one to whom you owe is many, many, many miles away. You don't know him. You have not seen his face, but you know that you are a debtor to him. You know that there is your name written in his book with the amount owed, and he has no intention of crossing out your name. Imagine that a friend comes and says, I'm going to pay this for you. It's my intention to settle this debt on your behalf. Don't worry anymore. And imagine your friend writes for you a promissory note. He writes just on a piece of paper with a stamp, a promissory note. I intend to pay your debt. And he gives to you this note and then off he goes. He's going to travel to see the one to whom you owe the money. He will be traveling for many weeks. And you wave goodbye and you are overcome with gratitude. But he intends to pay your debt and you, you cling so tightly to that note. And you look at that note every hour of every day that he is gone. And it's many weeks and you don't hear from him. He's traveling to see the one who has the book and you don't hear from him and he keeps traveling and you just keep holding the note. And in time, you might start to question, did he make it? Did he, did he make the payment? Was it accepted? Is my debt now cleared? Is my name still in that book? And you look at the note, just wait to hear the news. And then one day in the mail, You recognize his writing. And you open the envelope and you pull out a copy. It's a copy, a carbon copy of the page from the book. And your name is there with the amount. And it says paid in full. The resurrection speaks to us of the cross having paid in full our debt. The debt that we owe because of our sin. 
A debt that none of us could ever repay. None of us could ever repay, not even in part, let alone in full. And as Jesus teaches his disciples, he gives to them a promissory note. I have come to lay down my life as a ransom for many. And then they see him crucified. And who knows if time had passed, if it weren't for the empty tomb, perhaps over time they might start to put the pieces together and say, was that what he was talking about? Perhaps it is that we are to understand his death on the cross that day in that way. But in God's kindness, he did not leave that for us to ponder. He raised Christ from the dead. And by looking and seeing and beholding the risen Christ, we can be certain that our sins have been paid for. Again, Paul writes to the Romans, chapter 4, verse 25, Jesus was handed over for our trespasses and raised for our justification. His raising from the grave makes plain to everyone that we are justified. Where can meaning be found? It is found in the risen Christ. Not least because... The risen Christ addresses our deepest need. Whatever is in your heart as you have come here this morning, whatever answer to the question that you would give, what is your greatest problem, your deepest need, your greatest desire? Whatever answer you would give, God would answer your greatest problem is your sin. Your deepest desire ought to be to reconcile yourself to me. And the cross addresses that greatest need. It satisfies our deepest desires. And the crucifixion, coupled with the resurrection, proclaims to us the victory of Christ over sin. The third and final clue that Mark gives us significance of Christ's resurrection is the validation of our hope. The validation of our hope. This angel, the young man, tells the women, go, tell the disciples and Peter, go to Galilee. Jesus is already on his way. You need to go and catch up. He's on his way. He's going before you. Go. Now, Mark is referencing Jesus going ahead of them in a very literal and physical manner. He's on his way to Galilee. You need to get there. Elsewhere, as we've already read this morning, the apostles will talk about Jesus in his resurrected form going ahead of us in other ways. Specifically, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about Christ, the resurrected Christ, as the first fruits. What he means by that term is that in his resurrected form, Christ goes ahead of us, declaring the reality of a new creation. 
When Jesus emerges from the tomb in his resurrected body, he shows to us the very first expression of a new creation. He declares the victory over sin and death, and Jesus shares that victory with all those who would put their faith in him. If you don't put your faith in Christ, you have no part in that victory. If you put your faith in Christ, he shares the victory with you such that you are able to look at the resurrected Christ and see what will be true of you. Namely, one day, according to God's timing, he will give to you a resurrected body and usher you into a new creation. It is not now. We are called to continue to live in this fallen, broken world with sin in us and sin around us as we long for the return of Christ. But as we look at the resurrected Jesus, we can be confident that good things are on their way. Having put our faith in him, we know that one day, very soon, he will give to us resurrected bodies and we will be part of the new creation. No more aching backs, no more weak knees, no more cancer, no more car wrecks, no more sin in us, no more sin around us. For all those who have put their faith in Christ, he will give to you at his appointed time a new body to be part of a new creation. The resurrection validates our hope. Now notice the response of the women. Mark tells us that they went out from the tomb trembling, in astonishment. They were afraid. And that is the end of Mark's gospel. The verses that follow almost certainly were not originally written by Mark. They most certainly were added later. I don't think that Mark ran out of papyrus. I don't even, I don't even necessarily think that there was something he wrote that later was misplaced. And so I can't wait to ask Mark in the new creation, what were you thinking? Why did you end there? Why didn't you include a sighting of the resurrected Christ? Mark's gospel makes no mention of the resurrected Christ. It is by inference from the empty tomb that we see him. But I wonder if in that day when I ask him, he'll say, I knew exactly what I was doing. It was intentional. Abrupt endings have a way of causing the reader to ponder. Abrupt endings such as the one that Mark's gospel gives to us have a way of causing all who would read it to reflect. To reflect in a manner perhaps that we would not if we had an ending to the notion of they all lived happily ever after. The abrupt ending, the, the response of the women... 
which should not necessarily be taken as a negative response, but simply a response of being utterly overwhelmed. They do not know what to make of this announcement. They're coming to terms with it as their world is spinning. This abrupt ending should surely prompt us to consider. What have we made of the resurrection? You see, properly thought upon, the question really is not where can meaning be found. Properly thought upon, the question is, have I attributed value to the resurrection? The biblical witness proclaims to us that meaning is to be found here. Ultimate significance, ultimate value, ultimate worth. The question is whether you have given to it meaning, significance, value. If you have not, I would encourage you to speak to someone today. Speak to someone about these claims of a resurrected Christ. And if you have, rejoice. Rejoice greatly. Because in the resurrected Christ, we find our King, our Savior, and our hope. Let's pray in response. Father, again, we praise you for the resurrection this morning, the empty tomb. The empty tomb validates Jesus' identity as the Son of God. The empty tomb confirms that he is exactly who he said he is, the Son of God, the King of Israel, the anointed king of the whole world. We give you thanks this morning for the resurrection of Christ because it validates his mission. The empty tomb demonstrates that the cross accomplished everything that Christ said it would accomplish. He has indeed made a payment for our sin. There is nothing left to pay. We give you thanks this morning for the resurrection of Christ because it validates our hope. The empty tomb, his resurrected body, confirms for us that one day we will be raised to newness of life with resurrected bodies, with no sin, and forever we will dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And so for these truths, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.